Hello, and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. In this episode, we will be focusing on the importance of plasma, including what plasma is, why people living with PI, as well as other rare diseases, need plasma to survive, and how your friends and family members can donate plasma to save lives. And now, let's begin. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode all about plasma. I'm your host, John Boyle. People living with a primary immunodeficiency, or PI, are missing key parts of their immune system that help fight infections. Some types of PI leave people unable to make antibodies of their own. Many individuals living with PI, including yours truly, rely on immunoglobulin replacement therapy, or IG, to provide the antibodies that we don't make on our own. Those antibodies, of course, are necessary to fight off bacteria and viruses. These replacement antibodies come from human plasma. This plasma is collected from volunteers and is used to make Ig and other plasma-derived therapies that are necessary to the survival of many living with PI as well as other rare diseases. Today we will be discussing the importance of plasma with Amy Afantis, the President and CEO of the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association, or PPTA an organization representing more than 850 human plasma collection centers in North America and Europe, as well as the manufacturers of life-saving plasma protein therapies. During her time at PPTA, Amy has worked collaboratively with its stakeholders and leadership to guide the organization's strategic vision. Before joining PPTA, Amy served as the Vice President of Global Public Policy and Government Affairs at Biogen. Prior to her role with Biogen, she held a leadership role in government affairs and public policy with Beringer Ingelheim. Her lobbying career began at Pharma, which followed nearly a decade on Capitol Hill as Congressional Legislative Director and Advisor for various House committees, including Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means, primarily focused on healthcare policy. Amy's collective experience totals more than 25 years of executive management capability with expertise in the areas of strategic planning, advocacy, operations, and public relations. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, John. I'm really delighted to be with you today. Thank you. Well, we're uh, thrilled to have you here. Now, first, uh, let's do a little bit of a level setting. Can you give us a brief description of PPTA's role in terms of the plasma landscape? What exactly is your role as an organization and who are some of the other stakeholders? Well, we're a, PPTA is a trade association. Um, but we're also a standard-setting organization. So um, we represent the private sector producers of plasma-based and recombinant therapies. Um, and we're also a standard-setting organization focused on quality and safety for plasma protein therapies. We have, um, I think it's it's safe to say our, our membership is very diverse. Um, they provide more than 70% of the world's source plasma for fractionation and most of the world's life-saving plasma protein therapies. Our global board members um, include familiar names like um, Griffles and CSL Bering and Takeda, Cadrion, Biotest, and BPL. But then we also have regional members um, in North America, companies that 
uh, many of your listeners have heard of like Emergent and Adma, and we also have European members and then source members who are the collectors um, and then associate members and of a variety of members who uh, touch the plasma world through um, equipment, um, through um, the uh, all the different supply chain members. Um, and then, of course, we work closely with a lot of different stakeholders, like patient groups, uh, provider groups, etc., um, because we shared those uh, very similar missions. Perfect. Well, uh, uh, you and obviously PPTA are uh, very much at the uh, the center of all things plasma. So uh, who better to uh, ask if you can, beyond what I uh, mentioned at the uh, the top of this, uh, can you tell us a little bit about plasma, discuss what it's used for, and help to uh, orient those who are maybe less familiar with plasma and plasma therapies? I would love to. This is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> so... Um, Plasma comes from blood, and a lot of people are surprised to learn that plasma is the biggest constituent of blood. Um, plasma is the is a straw-colored liquid um, that makes up most of our blood after the the red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and other cellular components are taken away. You're left with plasma. Plasma itself is loaded with proteins and. This is important, and I loved the introduction to your podcast because you do a really nice job explaining why that's important. Certain individuals are born either missing those proteins or have damaged proteins. And so the, our companies, um, they enter into a process called fractionation, and that literally breaks down the plasma into fractions or the individual protein components. They'll, so they remove those proteins, isolate them, and then those proteins can then be manufactured into further therapies that can be used to replace the missing proteins for individuals who suffer from chronic disease like primary immune deficiency. Now, that is, uh, I think, a great explanation, and I think it's a great reminder for uh, our community we tend to talk about immunoglobulins, antibodies, but of course they are at their heart proteins. And I think that that sometimes gets uh, overlooked a little bit. So I uh, appreciate the reminder there. Now, all that you're talking about is uh, certainly more complex uh, than I think what people tend to think about when it comes to uh, donating you know, blood, or in this case, a uh, blood uh, component. Can you talk a little bit about the differences, but also the similarities between uh, what I would probably consider the, the whole blood donation uh, approach versus the plasma donation approach in terms of, uh, you know, what the donor has to do, where they can donate, uh, and anything else that you think helps to, to paint the picture of, again, the similarities and the differences. Yes, of course. And, and this is such an important question. Um, because most people are familiar with blood donation, but are not familiar with plasma donation. I think there are a lot of people who know more today because of COVID. We refer to that as sort of a halo effect that people have learned about plasma because of its use in treating COVID. But um, there really still is a big delta in, in knowledge about it. So 
most people understand that a blood donation takes roughly, you know, 30 minutes. Um, and, and people understand how that works. Um, plasma donation is more complex than um, blood donation. So when a person donates plasma, and, and I'm speaking as someone who's been both a plasma donor and a blood donor, your first visit is always longer and more involved than subsequent visits. Uh, but it is a longer process because the blood is removed from the donor, but then it's centrifuged um, so that the plasma is removed and the red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and compo cellular components are returned to the donor. So it's a little bit more involved than a blood donation. Well, in terms of donating and maybe donating frequently, a lot of people in our community are interested uh, in, in helping to get the word out about that. But of course, there is not a plasma donation center around every corner. The makeup of where the donation centers are, it's not the same as, of course, donating uh, blood uh, through you know, a local drive where a blood mobile comes up or someone comes to your office. Can you talk a little bit about the physical infrastructure of where there are donation centers, uh, you know, why are they in some states and not others? Why is it that, uh, you know, you can't donate all around the country the way that, well, a lot of people would like to be able to uh, be involved and to donate? Right. That's that's really important because they're they're not exactly parallel plasma donation and blood donation. So whereas uh, um, for a blood donation, you know, I think we've all probably seen um, or are familiar with a blood mobile or a mobile collection facility that can travel to donors. Uh, that doesn't exist for plasma collection because of the the, uh, the level of sophistication and the need for um, the storage need, which is you know very low temperatures, having a freezer on hand, etc. Um, so it is different that way in terms of needing to have um, a physical you know, stationary structure, a plasma center. So it's, um, and those are located, interestingly enough, and this has to do more with public policy, but if you look at a map and there are over, I think it's over 850 collection centers now in the U.S., the numbers have been growing. The, the regions in, of the U.S. that sort of shoulder a disproportionate burden for collecting plasma um, are really the Sun Belt and the Rust Belt, and then you see states like New York and California that um, proportionally have a much lower presence of plasma centers. And that has to do with the differences in state regulations. And it's one of the things that we're focused as a trade association on right now uh, is addressing those sort of outdated regulations that prevent plasma centers from opening and prevent us from maximizing collection. Well, you talked a little bit about the disproportionate burden on uh, those states uh, in the aforementioned Sunbelt and Rust Belt, but you also mentioned earlier uh, the, uh, the amount that is collected here in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of disproportionate nature uh, of why more plasma is collected here in the United States, uh, you know, versus in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is important. So um, if you look at Europe, for example, the U.S. collects a lot more plasma than Europe does. 
and the countries in Europe where the most collection occurs are the four countries where the private sector is allowed to operate, and that's um, Germany, Hungary, Austria, and the Czech Republic. Those four countries and the United States, what they have in common is that donors, plasma donors, are that their donations are allowed to be recognized with compensation. So the rest of um, European countries and some of the, some states in the U.S. Um, have regulations in place that prevents that. And I think we've seen there's years of data now that show that it's this is really an important component of being able to collect um, the amount of plasma necessary to meet clinical need. And it's one of those outdated regulations that we continue to fight. Uh, one thing that, that we've observed since COVID is that there are places um, in Europe where COVID donations are being recognized and compensated. And I think the question that arises from that to me is why is it okay to co compensate COVID recovered donors, but not donors who are um, supplying the raw material necessary for the perpetual need of plasma for people with chronic rare disease. This is a topic that I would love to spend about two hours more on, but I think that I will um, maybe uh, uh, suggest that we save uh, the issues of compensation and bioethics and uh, maybe, let's say, uh, outmoded uh, uh, ways of thinking about these issues for another episode. Uh, but uh, to clarify, though, just because the issues of, you know, and the confusion around um, blood donation versus plasma donation and the compensation that is, you know, allowed here in the United States... Can you talk just a little bit more about the compensation in terms of what is it that is being compensated? Because again, this is a, a concept that some people find strange. Like, are you selling your plasma? Right. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. So the way it's um, the way we look at this is that that donor's time and effort is being recognized. As I said, a plasma donation takes longer than a blood donation. And when we talk about the need, um, the intense need for plasma as a raw material uh, is very high. Whereas the need for blood because of programs like hospital blood management, that's meant we haven't needed as much um, blood to treat patients as we have in the past. The need for plasma has only increased for many different reasons. But because that need is so acute, um, and we need more donations, we want people to be return uh, donors. We want donors to come back, and it is an inconvenience. And so their time is recognized. Um, I, can't, I can't answer in detail how every, how every center does this. I, I believe, though, in the U.S., it's with uh, cash cards. It's not like a cash transaction. But, you know, I, I don't, again, we, this is an ethics discussion for some people. I would also point out the fact that a lot of blood donations are recognized with some sort of um, with gift cards or what in a lot of different ways. So um, I don't think that this is an issue at all. I think that's um, this is an outdated way of looking at things. Um, and 
this is, it's really important, the frequency of donation. For someone who has primary immune deficiency, on average, their therapy relies on 130 donations a year. So these therapies are very resource intense. Oh, very much so. And and the what you've mentioned about the the fact that it is more time intensive and that you have to go to a dedicated center um, means that there are obviously uh, differences from again what people think of I think as the standard blood donation. Um, but ju- just to kind of follow this along a little bit more, is there anything else uh, in terms of again the similarities or differences? Um, of someone who might donate blood versus plasma in terms of the Venn diagram of, of things that are similar versus different, uh, how much overlap is there? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of overlap in the sense that, um, y- you know, it's, there is a donor mentality. It's someone who is willing to give of their time um, for somebody else, which is important. Um, again, the time commitment is greater for plasma um, than it is for blood and you can do it with greater frequency. Um, there are donors, um, come in, plasma donors come in all shapes and sizes, ages, and, you know, the demographic, um, variability is very broad. So, you know, plasma centers exist around the country. And I think plasma donors come from every walk of life. Um, and the message, my message for all plasma donors always is that plasma donors save lives. Every time you donate, you're saving a life. Well, that has been um, <laughs> an enormous amount of information for our listeners to absorb. So uh, why don't we uh, take this as a moment to uh, take a quick break, allow people to uh, think about what they've heard for a second, and then uh, we will talk some more in just one moment. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. Welcome back. My guest, Amy Afontis from PPTA, is here to discuss the importance of plasma. Now, to get even a little bit more specific with uh, those who hopefully are thinking about saving lives, uh, can you give a broad sense, since I know there are some specifics and there might be some variability, uh, about things that might disqualify someone from uh, being a plasma donor? Uh, Again, similar or different uh, to uh, things that might disqualify someone from being a blood donor. Sure. So when um, maybe it's probably best for me to talk about kind of the process that you go through if you're a plasma donor, a first time plasma donor, especially um, because that visit is typically takes longer than subsequent visits. So the the and and again, if someone is uh, wants to be a plasma donor, um, my recommendation is always to call your local center first. Um, and maybe you can make this available, but donatingplasma.org is a great place to start. 
um, donatingplasma.org will link you to the nearest plasma center um, in your area. And different centers have sort of different requirements, especially now during the pandemic. So they may have a mask requirement. They will check your temperature, et cetera. But for a typical first-time donor, um, when you arrive at the center, you'll be pre-screened and given some um, educational material so that you fully understand what it is that you're, what you're doing and what it's used for. Um, and they will give you reasons for deferral. So that could be based on um, health issues. And these are all standards that are established by regulators. Um, you're given a questionnaire on your eligibility. If at that point as a donor, you still qualify, then you're brought in for a physical um, and you have to meet certain requirements in your physical. So I, I believe the minimum weight is 110 pounds. You have to have a certain um, hematocrit level or iron level so the so that you qualify. Um, and then once that process is finished, then you can go to the donation process. And at that point, it doesn't take so long. It's um, longer than your standard blood donation, but it's not a terribly long process. So that first, that first donation is um, definitely takes longer. If um, you have, you can be deferred for a number of reasons. If you um, have certain diseases, HCV, certain forms of hepatitis, HIV, if you've been exposed to certain things, if you've traveled to certain regions, et cetera, those things can be disqualifiers. Perfect. Now, uh, let's say that you, uh, as uh, you said before, you, you've been a plasma donor in the past and, and blood donor. Uh, let's say that someone makes their donation, uh, uh, they go through that whole first uh, piece, uh, and they say, great, that, that was lovely. Um, uh, you know, I'm glad that I've done it. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm good. I've done my piece. Um, there is a little bit of a catch here, isn't there, uh, the, uh, to that first donation? Can you talk a little bit about that? So that first donation is not usable until you return for a second donation. Um, and this has to do with um, testing requirements and ensuring, um, ensuring the safety of the plasma. So the return donation the second time is really critical. Um, and not only that the, the donor returns, um, but the centers also look out for the health of the donor too. Um, so I have a good friend who donated plasma recently. As I said, I'm an evangelist about this. I encourage everyone I can to do it and I don't live far from a center. So I'm always telling people to, to, to do this. Um, and a friend of mine went and had too much albumin, which I'd never heard of before, but they called and said, you know, until that changes, we can't use your plasma. Uh, so they won't be able to use that first donation until he is able to come back and demonstrate. But the return donor is really essential um, so that that plasma can then be used to be made into a medicine. Speaking of turning the plasma into a medicine, can you talk a little bit about uh, how long it takes uh, from, let's say, the, the hour that someone uh, makes their donation to how and where it goes from there? And in general, how long does it take until someone like me can 
theoretically infuse it uh, as a plasma-derived product, in my case, immunoglobulin? What is the, if you will, vein-to-vein uh, -vein journey that uh, the plasma might make? Yep, that's a great image. So I'll start out by saying, you know, I think you mentioned my um, job history includes work in the biopharma space, and I've worked for companies that make um, medicines that are small molecule or what people know as pill and tablet drugs, right? And then I worked for a company that made biologic drugs, which are made from cell lines and are injected. Um, with pill and tablets, you can manufacture the chemicals and make more and more drugs. Um, with biologics, most of them, you are using a cell line, cell culture, and, and you can those can be gotten relatively easily. But the therapies we're talking about rely on donations from individual people every day, one at a time. And this is really, this is so critical to remember because then you, once you come in the door from the time you make that donation, and again, it's not usable until you've come a second time and it's been validated, okay? From that point forward, that plasma, um, it goes through the manufacturing process and it takes seven to 12 months before it becomes a therapy. So I'll say that again, because I think this is really profound. It's a seven to 12 month process. And when you visit one of these facilities, I've, I've visited a few uh, collection centers, but also where plasma is fractionated and where these therapies are manufactured. You, I can't even begin to describe to you the level of sort of gowning you have to do in order to go. I mean, it, the, the, the facilities are so sterile and clean. Um, and the plasma itself, this is such a highly regulated process to ensure safety. The plasma is routinely tested. And then as it goes through the process, it's purified, it's filtered, it is subjected to heat treatment, it's virally inactivated. Um, and, and all of these numerous steps are to ensure safety for the finished product. So it's important that seven to 12 months is really important to the safety of the finished product. Now, Amy, as a person living with PI, I know that plasma is critical for my immunoglobulin therapy. It is what my immunoglobulin therapy is made of. But can you discuss who benefits from plasma donation besides those living with PI? maybe describe some of the other types of plasma-derived therapies and the other uh, conditions from which uh, plasma-derived therapies are needed? Uh, yes, I'm happy to. And I think, you know, the PI community is obviously very important um, to plasma protein therapies, but there are a number of other patient communities and indications for plasma protein therapies. So as you mentioned at the beginning, John, and as we discussed, for people who are born without a certain protein or with um, a damaged protein, they benefit from these therapies. So for example, if a person is born with a deficient or damaged alpha-1 protein, they can develop alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So these patients develop what's known as sort of um, hereditary emphysema, chronic emphysema, and their lungs become very compromised. Um, other folks can develop, uh, are born with um, out certain clotting factor and can develop 
um, bleeding disorders like hemophilia or von Willebrand's disease. Um, for a patient born without a, with a missing C1 esterase inhibitor, which before I started working here, believe me, I didn't know what that was. But if you're born without that, you can develop a disease called hereditary angioedema, which causes severe edema or swelling to the point that it can be fatal. And it's also important to understand the sort of broad uses of these therapies. They're also used to treat shock and trauma, uh, burn patients. Um, so they're used a lot in the military theater. Um, they're uh, used to treat hepatitis, um, liver conditions. They're used for organ transplants, um, for animal bites, so like rabies. And of course, you know, many people are now familiar with how they're uh, used to treat or they're being developed to treat COVID um, in the same way that um, like hyperimmune globulins are used for things like tetanus or were developed to treat diseases like Ebola. You mentioned hyperimmunes there. Can you talk a little bit about what a hyperimmune is as opposed to uh using more basically uh, convalescent plasma. We've heard a lot about the possible use of convalescent plasma and some within our community and, and elsewhere have heard a little bit about hyperimmunes, but I don't think that there's uh, uh, as much distinction uh, and understanding out there as there might be. Can you talk a little bit about the differences, similarities, how anti-COVID antibodies can maybe theoretically come into play? Yes. Um, again, I think since the the pandemic, I've been of two minds on this. On the one hand, I'm so thrilled that people are understanding more about the importance of plasma and the role it plays, but there is so much confusion around what it is and what it does, particularly as it relates to COVID. So I think first, it's helpful to just break out um, convalescent plasma and what it's being, what it is being used for or could be used for from standard source or normal plasma, which is used to develop the medicines to treat uh, diseases like primary immune deficiency. So our mission at PPTA is focused on source plasma. We want to make sure there's this, uh, that source plasma is continually being collected regardless of any pandemic, right? And and that's where we're really focused, um, where our work is, our efforts right now. But many of our companies are also involved in the development of what, as you referred to, as hyperimmunes. So that in the convalescent plasma sphere, you can think about this being broken up into sort of two avenues. One is convalescent plasma or plasma that's taken from someone who has recovered from COVID-19. I think many of uh, people listening to this have probably seen some ads from The Fight Is In Us, which a lot of our companies um, are participating in Alliance because they're developing these therapies to collect plasma from those recovered patients. They have antibodies that can be useful. So that can be collected for the blood centers, for example, are collecting that plasma and then it's being directly infused into patients who are ill with COVID-19. That's one use. But our companies, most of them are working on, they're in development, 
uh, projects to develop a hyperimmune. So they're taking that convalescent plasma and then they're putting it through a manufacturing process that could potentially develop a therapy to treat people with COVID-19 or to uh, be used prophylactically or as a preventative measure um, for, for example, healthcare workers. And this would be this would be very helpful in the absence of a vaccine or even after a vaccine before there is enough, um, these hyperimmune. So again, these are just in development. There's nothing to speak to yet, um, but all of our global companies are involved in some sort of an effort related to those kinds of therapies. One of the questions that I've gotten um, is, you know, do they compete that need for convalescent plasma and the need for source plasma? And they're not in competition with each other because they're serving different audiences. Uh, however, I think source plasma needs to be treated with as much attention um, as we see. Um, and that's why this is such a big part of my current sort of mission is waking people up to this need that we have this perpetual need all the time, whether or not we have a pandemic going on. Well, the, the need exists. And while there have been, of course, uh, you know, decades of people donating plasma and uh, with all that I know, uh, uh, increasing uh, donations of plasma as the need has increased, I understand that plasma donations have been affected and decreased during the pandemic, especially when uh, you know, the lockdowns uh, were were starting in various states, and there was confusion about, uh, you know, could you go out? Could you go to a plasma center? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what your member companies uh, saw happen uh, during those early months of the pandemic, uh, and maybe talk about uh, what this could mean for the plasma supply in uh, the months and year to come? Yes. Well, again, this is really a critical issue because the time is now. So if you look historically, and we have this data on our website, um, if you look at source plasma collections in the United States for the past decade, you see these this beautiful growth. So as I said, many new centers have opened. Um, 2018 saw record plasma collections, and that was beaten in 2019 with record plasma collections. And even though we saw record collections in those years, um, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are keenly aware of this, even in those years of record collection, we saw challenges with patient access. So now imagine this year, because of the pandemic, we saw drops, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic in the U.S. when we refer to it as the lockdown, right? Um, even though we worked with the Department of Homeland Security and they quickly deemed plasma centers to be essential and donors to be essential and employees, in spite of that, there was still a lot of fear and collections dropped significantly. And it's, you know, my, my disclaimer, because as a trade association, we are governed by very strict um, competition law uh, there's nothing I can say sort of prospectively, um, and, nor do I have any sort of data that would tell that, except that we know that we had those record years in 2018 and 2019, still saw those challenges. And now we've seen, um, and this is publicly available, it's been um, 
in the press that some of our largest uh, companies, collectors that make up more than half the centers in the U.S. have said that they saw significant drops in collection. Um, one company said that they saw donations fall by more than 25% in the um, three months, the first three months of the sort of the pandemic. Uh, another, I think, cited a 10% across the board drop. We are, the good news is we are seeing a recovery um, in the U.S., but it's still not returning to where it was in, say, 2019. The message is we need plasma right now. So if we step back to what we spoke about a few minutes ago, which is that that manufacturing process from collection to finished therapy takes 7 to 12 months, and we know we've seen a decline in donations, we know that the need is right now to get the word out that we need plasma collection now. Well, we need plasma collection now. And you mentioned earlier uh, donatingplasma.org. Uh, and then the Immune Deficiency Foundation has recently developed uh, the plasmahero.org. Uh, what, knowing that there are uh, over 850 plasma centers uh, around the U.S., but knowing that not everyone has really explored, uh, you know, whether there is a center near them, uh, and knowing that there is a great need. What is your way, as you said, you like to uh, evangelize uh, on behalf of Plasma, uh, what is your pitch to our listeners here, some of whom uh, use a plasma-derived therapy, some of whom know someone who's used a plasma-derived therapy? What, what, what is what is the uh, the pitch to help make sure that, uh, you know, patients like me, like uh, those that PPTA, uh, you know, consider stakeholders, get to the point where we all want to be with a more stable and robust um, plasma supply? That's the million dollar question. We have a sort of call to action that we're working on right now, John, which is that first and foremost, I mean, I'm screaming from the rooftops, waving my arms, the urgent need for source plasma collection right now. That involves uh, alerting policymakers to outdated regulations, um, using social channels, social media channels to spread this message. You may not live in an area where there's a plasma center, but you can certainly share on Facebook, um, on Twitter, however you like to communicate um, this need, the urgent need and, and the urgent need now. Um, and then finally, if you're eligible to donate, please do. Um, I live in, in an area, I'm fortunate because I live near in an urban area. I live near Washington. So um, I live near more than one plasma center. And I've encouraged uh, a lot of friends and neighbors to donate plasma, um, my husband included. And so uh, I really think this is, it's so important. I feel very passionately about this. So anyone you can encourage to get out there and do that right now, please do. Well, I think that that is a perfect uh, uh, spot to end with. Uh, please encourage uh, your friends, your neighbors, dear listeners. Uh, the time is now. Uh, plasma donations are needed. Uh, and Amy, I, I really appreciate uh, your 
coming here uh, and joining us here on the podcast to talk a little bit about this, but I suspect that we are going to have maybe other topics to do deeper dives on uh, in the future, but uh, I do appreciate your time here today. Excellent. Thank you so much, John. I really enjoyed this time with you. Likewise. And many thanks to our listeners for being with us here today. We hope that you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this one in the future as we explore the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There are always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. And leave us a review on iTunes so others will discover this podcast. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.